Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Tuesday, May 30th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will discuss an article from the May 2006 edition of Critical Care Medicine entitled, A Randomized Trial of Intermittent Lorazepam versus Propofol with Daily Interruption in Mechanically Ventilated Patients. The reference is Critical Care Medicine 2006, Volume 34, Number 5, page 1326. We have two guests today. The first is Shannon S. Carson, M.D., Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he is an Associate Medical Director of the Medical and Respiratory ICUs there. Our other guest is John P. Kress, M.D., Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago. This is a randomized trial in the medical ICUs of two tertiary care medical centers in which patients who were going to be receiving more than 48 hours of sedation and who required greater than or equal to 10 milligrams of lorazepam were randomized to either intermittent lorazepam or propofol with daily awakening. And we'll get into why later. And just to for our listeners, the major outcomes, as listed in your table three, and there are three major areas. First was the median ventilator days for all patients, and the group that was randomized to the propofol arm, the, those uh, median ventilator days decreased from 8.4 to 5.8. And most importantly for the survivors, it went from 9 to 4.4 days. And then importantly, the ICU length of stay, again for the survivors, the median went from 12.7 days down to 8.6. So I thought we'd start out by having you share with us, and I guess we could start with you, Dr. Carson, perhaps painting a little bit of the background as to current recommendations for sedation for the critically ill patient, specifically the 2002 guidelines, and why this particular study was designed. The idea for this study came out of discussions with our um, clinical ICU uh, pharmacists um, on rounds. I had had some experience with propofol where I had trained at the University of Chicago, uh, but when I came to the University of North Carolina, I noted that the standard sedative used for mechanically ventilated patients in the medical ICU was lorazepam given intermittently. And uh, our pharmacists supported that use uh, by primarily the clinical guidelines published by the SCCM, which were based upon the available data that suggested that um, lorazepam was as effective a sedative as propofol. And considering that it was much less expensive, it was favored by our pharmacists. However, my own anecdotal experience seemed to suggest that patients would awaken 
from propofol sedation more quickly than uh, from lorazepam. And as our approach to liberating patients from mechanical ventilation was tending more and more towards uh, daily spontaneous breathing trials where patients, where sedatives are held, patients are allowed to breathe with minimal levels of vent support or through T-pieces, more rapid awakening seemed more important factor. So together with our pharmacists, we decided to um, design a trial that compared these two approaches to sedation. And knowing Dr. Kress's expertise in this area with um, particularly with daily awakening of patients requiring continuous infusions of sedatives, I asked his help in um, the design of the trial and later in enrollment of patients. Well, Dr. Kress, I was going to ask you to comment. It seemed to me that the two major differences of this trial compared with others were that Number one, the cost of propofol has gone down if it's being considered for more of a long-term sedative agent. And secondly, integrating this concept of the daily awakening, uh, which you know related to your trial published in 2000 in the New England Journal. I was wondering if you could make some comments on that. I think the, the cost issue gets a lot of attention, particularly when you're talking about the way we typically deliver care, which is fragmented. So the pharmacists have to account for, for the drugs they use. That's understandable. That's um, that's a big part of what they do. And so their cost, um, that's an um, important consideration. But the cost of care in the ICU, the, the only issue that focused on being the drug is rather narrow-sighted. So if you look at other issues like the number of days you spend in the intensive care unit, the number of problems you, you develop because of being in the intensive care unit, you can quickly realize that the cost of the drug per se, is a relatively minor component. So the cost of propofol surely had gone down as it became uh, available in the generic form. But even when it wasn't available in the generic form, in my view, the the cost issue has to be looked at in a much broader context than just that. You're randomizing a group to a continuous infusion where the concept might be, based on previous work by Marin Kolliff and others, that the continuous infusion arm might not do so well, but it's a short-acting drug, and you've integrated this daily awakening, and that seemed to be a new aspect. Yes. The work by Marin Kolliff's group was um, sentinel work that made us aware of this issue of continuous infusion of sedatives and, and the potential problems associated with that. Whether you're doing a daily interruption with a drug like propofol or benzodiazepine, we used midazolam in our other study, but regardless, um, it's a way of getting around the problem of having drug accumulation. So the daily awakening seeks to avoid that problem, that is drug accumulation over time uh, by stopping it every day. Whether you're using a drug like propofol or another drug uh, is probably less important than the way that you deliver it. Now, the nice thing about propofol is it's a more titratable drug. I sometimes refer to it as a more forgiving drug. If you give more than perhaps is needed, um, you don't end up waiting a long time to have recovery from it, unlike the drugs um, in other classes such as the benzodiazepine. So we were eager to see whether using a combination of the drug that has the um, shortest half-life coupled to a strategy that um, has been shown to combat the problems of continuous infusion might give you the best of both worlds. In my experience, um, both as a fellow and attending, is that propofol 
in continuous infusions really become a reasonable drug of choice for, for example, neurosurgical patients who require long-term uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation. And so I guess one of the questions that you guys are asking in this study is, well, why wouldn't that become a standard of care for other patients? Well, exactly. You know, the fact that it's become standard of care for neurosurgical patients is based on the fact that they need to do frequent neurologic checks, and for that, they need patients to awaken rather quickly. Well, if you want a patient to awaken rather quickly to perform a spontaneous breathing trial at least once a day, it's the same concept. And are you not better off with a uh, sedative agent that um, clears more quickly when held? Or, as Dr. Kress said, in whose effects improve more quickly when at least dose-adjusted. We're going to focus on some of the potential reasons why this would be beneficial in a moment. But I had a, maybe you'll say, a silly sort of statistical question, but for perhaps fellows who are trying to get involved in their own research projects, how was it determined that it was the median number of ventilator days rather than the mean? Can you talk about how you figured that out? The ventilator days, as you know, are skewed rather heavily to the to the right, and that most patients are liberated from mechanical ventilator within four or five days. However, as you know, there are a percentage of patients, you know, 10, 20 percent, whose time on the ventilator stretches out to 14, 21, or 30 days. Because ventilator days is not at all normally distributed, comparing the median time on the ventilator was um, indicated. Now, you get into actually a rather um, difficult question on a broad sense as to what is the best way to compare duration of um, mechanical ventilation. Median ventilator days is, you know, indicated when you just look at distribution of time on the ventilator, but then you have mechanically ventilated patients in an ICU, some of them die. And if patients are more likely to die sooner in one group than the other, then your actual total ventilator days could be impacted significantly by patients who die. And frankly, when we're talking about um, time on the ventilator and getting patients out of the ICU, we're really talking about time on the ventilator for survivors. So we presented the data for all patients who were ventilated and enrolled in the study, but we also broke it down to time on the ventilator for survivors and presented time on the ventilator for patients who died so that our readers could appreciate that the uh, impact of the intervention here was on survivors and it wasn't that um, patients on one drug died sooner than patients on the other drug. I think that's important for any study looking at duration of ventilation as a primary outcome. Now, there's a composite outcome called 28-day ventilator-free days that takes into account both survival and time on the ventilator and is another alternative, which we presented also. But that, as a composite outcome, is sometimes a bit hard to understand um, on its face, and people have to stop and consider that that is a composite outcome and consider the components that go into it. In your discussion, you mentioned three or four reasons why you felt that the group randomized to the propofol arm with daily awakening did better based on the aforementioned variables. And I was wondering if either or both of you could make some comments, both there are biochemical reasons as well as this issue of delirium that comes up over and over again. And there's been a lot of attention paid to that recently. 
first and foremost, a person ready to come off mechanical ventilation should not be hindered from the healing process that led to them getting on the ventilator. That is the lung uh, and or circulatory problem that most of the time gets you there when it is healed um, should signal liberation, time to leave, get off the vent now. And so what we sometimes get into in a situation where the drugs we use to keep people comfortable during their time on the ventilator um, end up as an impedance to getting them off because they're not awake enough to take a deep breath to uh, breathe consistently uh, and adequately to come off the ventilator. So that's the first and foremost uh, component, and, and that was the notion that um, has been around, or that is the notion that's been around for a long time, uh, really for at least a decade. Um, and it was the premise behind our earlier study with daily sedative interruption. In addition to that, as more data have become available, we started to realize there may be other issues. This drug accumulation issue, um, so that patients are slow to awaken, um, can also lead to, I believe, alterations in mental status. Delirium, and delirium is common in critically ill patients. Uh, the work by the Vanderbilt group led by Wes Ely uh, reports somewhere in the 80% range of patients in the ICU have delirium. Certain drugs may be more inclined to predispose to delirium. The data there are very preliminary, but there are some data hinting at the fact that the benzodiazepines, in particular lorazepam, may be more likely to be associated with delirium. Nothing definitive as of yet, but, but there's a, a, an attractive suggestion that that may be the case, both from Ely's work, and I think to some degree indirectly from, from some of our work where we looked at the, the level of mental status uh, in the subgroup that had the, the Richmond agitation scale assessments. Exactly. The, you know, so there's preliminary data suggesting that lorazepam might ca cause more delirium that wasn't a primary question when we started the study as the, you know, the attention to delirium that is um, so prominent now really wasn't out there yet when we first designed the study. And the CAM-ICU, the Confusion Assessment Method for the ICU, which is uh, the instrument that Dr. Ely and his colleagues had validated to measure delirium, that had not been published when we um, started the trial. So we were not measuring delirium specifically uh, during the clinical trial. However, our observation was that the lorazepam patients, when you know the lorazepam was held in the morning for spontaneous breathing trials, the lorazepam patients would go from a state of sedation, say a Ramsey score of you know, two or three, or a RAS score of you know minus two, minus three they would go from that level of sedation to a level of agitation without a period in between of being able to follow commands and, um, and interact. In other words, they go from a state of sedation to active or agitated delirium without much clearance in between. And that tended to be less of a problem with, with the propofol group. Again, this is um, observation and not careful measurement of delirium. Again, uh, the best that we have is the, the subgroup of patients within whom RAS scores were measured, and there was a larger number who went from lower RAS scores of minus 2, minus 3, to higher RAS scores of plus 2 than in the, um, the lorazepam group than in the propofol group. I think CAM, ICU, and other measurements of delirium are now standard parts of sedation studies going forward, as they should be, 
And I think this issue will be um, fleshed out more clearly in subsequent studies. Well, again, just to to sort of uh, re-summarize that for the listeners, again, the signal is out there that delirium is bad, that there may be a signal that the use of benzos may be associated with increased delirium, and that if patients can be provided adequate sedation with a appropriate but a drug that remains short-acting and isn't a benzo, your data certainly go along with that, all of the previous work. I think what you state is a reasonable hypothesis. Our data might be consistent with that, but in no way proves that hypothesis. One of the other questions I had for you about your paper was that the group that was randomized to receiving propofol received uh, somewhat greater amounts of morphine, and I was wondering if you could comment on that. Is that just going along with the fact that propofol does not have uh, significant analgesic properties? That's something we've seen on several papers. It's hard for me to, at this point, uh, to think that that is a a funny coincidence or or just an epiphenomenon. There there must be something going on because several other papers that we've done have shown the similar finding. I, in the simplest way of looking at it will say there's no analgesic effect with propofol, and so these patients require higher doses of of analgesics, whereas there's a controversy but some suggestion that the benzodiazepines, when given in conjunction with opiates, uh, have a synergistic effect, meaning less opiate is, is necessary, and there's some very old literature that supports that notion. Above and beyond that, I don't know, and, and Dr. Carson may have some additional comments. I'll just throw out as a, perhaps as a teaser, what we also speculated, which is that if the patients get more opiates, they tend to breathe slower and deeper, and slow, deep breathing translates into successful liberation from mechanical ventilation. So I wondered, and uh, we, uh, Dr. Carson and I talked about this, we both wondered whether the the higher opiates led to a breathing pattern that was more consistent with prediction of success and uh, quicker liberation from mechanical ventilation. But it certainly wasn't masking anything because the patients got off the ventilator faster. Correct. So. No, I, I absolutely. Uh, one might argue that, that the patients in the other group breathing not so slow and not so deep might also have gotten off, although all the prior literature suggests that we used a protocol for liberation, which was has been tried and true for more than a decade. Right, very standard, the 96 paper from Wesley. I tried to look in your paper in terms of how much Haldol the two groups received, again, because this issue of agitation and Haldol appearing to be not so uh, bad compared with benzodiazepines, and I wasn't quite sure how to make sense of that. Did you want to comment on it? Yeah, a relatively low percentage of patients received Haldol, and it was pretty similar between the two groups. The way that the protocol worked was that if in the assessment of the physician or nurse taking care of the patient or working together, if the assessment was that delirium was driving a patient's agitation as opposed to anxiety or discomfort, that um, they were free to, to prescribe Haldol um, at their discretion. And that was done in about 12% of patients um, in the lorazepam group and about 9% of patients in the propofol group fairly evenly. So Haldol is given in response to perceived agitated delirium. The whole question of whether Haldol really fixes delirium as opposed to just sedates patients 
is still open and actually is under investigation uh, right now in a randomized trial. And again, the whole idea of whether Haldol will improve or lessen the more um, hypoactive form of delirium is also open to question. So Haldol was a relatively small player in this study um, and given uh, based upon perceived indication by clinicians. Say I want to go to my pharmacist and see if it's cost effective. What would be some of your, or are there any concerns about the average intensivist getting that message from this article that this may be a reasonable uh, drug to consider for my patients who need to be on the ventilator for more than 48 hours? Well, I think that they need to include good practice in using the drug, which involves daily interruption to make sure that patients can um, follow simple commands, to limit the dosing at, um, we usually limit it to a rate of 80 micrograms per kilogram per minute because doses higher than that have been associated with uh, acidosis and other manifestations of what they refer to as a propofol syndrome. So we limit the dosing. We also make sure that patients are receiving a narcotic in, in a concomitant manner because of what we perceive as benefits of a sedative and narcotic together to limit the doses of the actual sedative that the patient's being um, given. So daily awakening, limit the dosing, and um, provide narcotics uh, along with the sedative um, I think should be part of the standard practice when clinicians are using propofol. Finally, we also follow triglyceride levels every four days because triglyceride levels can become quite high in some patients. And to avoid complications um, associated with particularly high triglyceride levels, we monitor them every four days patients on propofol and stop the drug when the levels get above 500. Uh, Doing this kind of clinical critical care research is very difficult. Were there any sort of last things you wanted to share with the listeners, the challenges that were unexpected when you were doing this trial? Getting people to follow protocols uh, is always difficult. It's difficult in in clinical trials. It's even more difficult in practice. Um, So this is just a reminder when we do the trials that if a trial describes uh, some benefit that is uh, tangible um, to make sure you bring it back um, to your own practice and and take it into consideration. That isn't to say that every place, everywhere, every patient should be subjected to this approach that that we described, but certainly it should go into the armamentarium of thinking for, you know, improving patient care. The other comment um, is that this type of work is challenging because of the need to um, educate um, usually families, not patients, because the patients can't contribute or participate to the discussion about the, the clinical research. And if it weren't for the, the family's willingness to, to help us to expand what we know, uh, we could never do this kind of work. So um, just a, a comment or, or a remind people how important this is and to thank the people that are willing to participate um, in this kind of trial because it's um, it really does make a difference in what we do tomorrow compared to today. We've been speaking today with Dr. Shannon S. Carson from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, as well as Dr. John P. Cress from the University of Chicago. We were discussing their article published in Critical Care Medicine entitled A Randomized Trial of Intermittent Lorazepam versus Propofol with Daily Interruption in Mechanically Ventilated Patients.
Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, May 30th, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.